Welcome to FO Podcasts. I'm Atul Singh, the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Fair Observer. With me is Nasir Khilji. Nasir Khilji retired as the senior economist at the US Treasury. He's a mentor, he's a dear friend, and we've even been to the American Economic Association annual conference in New Orleans together on a long road trip. Uh, so Nasir, um, welcome back. You're an old hand. You were waxing lyrical about the global economy. Now you've got to be the oracle about the American economy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get cracking. You've retired from the Treasury. You know how the engine works. What are the great drivers of the American economy? Well, uh, of course, thank you, Atul. It's always nice to talk to you. Uh, yeah, we did have a great trip to New Orleans. It was just amazing. And we didn't go to the AEA, you know, 2023. So I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. So anyway, what are the great drivers of the American economy? As you know, it again, uh, like Milton Friedman once said, you can even teach um, a parrot to be an economist. You just have to teach him the, the words of supply and demand. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so, so the, the great drivers of the American economy, generally in the short run, it is a demand. Mm. By demand, I mean how much do households uh, spend? Mm. And, uh, you know, so there have been great thinkers like John Baptiste Say, the French thinker, and John Maynard Keynes, the English mm. economist. The so Cambridge John, man. The Cambridge man, of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, John Baptiste used to say that supply creates its own demand. Yeah, that says law. That says law. Yeah. And Keynes turned it over its head. Yeah. And he said demand creates its own supply. <laughs> so, so Maybe both way, of them were right. Or, were or maybe were both right. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. So Keynes spent most of his time focusing on demand. Because mm -hmm. he thought in the short term that was the the key to economic growth, and because he thought that in the long run we were all dead, so, which is true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so the key to short term, you know, looking at the outlook, if one were to talk about like two or three years down the road, how does the U.S. economy shape up? How do we see it mm -hmm. going forward? Clearly, the U.S. Uh, and the world economy has gone through a series of unprecedented shocks. Mm -hmm. Firstly, of course, it has been the, uh, you know, like um, the COVID, mm -hmm. COVID crisis, which shut down huge sectors of all economies in the world, and uh, which resulted in a lot of fiscal stimuli from many countries. And so that's been one unprecedented shock. And the other one has been that it's the first time, I think, uh, for maybe after World War II, that a major economy has had sanctions imposed on it, especially a major energy exporter has been subject to, uh, you know, um, sanctions. So that has had another shock to the economy. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. being one of the, actually the largest economy in the world, how, does it, how has the U.S.A. fared and now how does it look? over the next two or three years. Now, clearly, I think the worst is behind us. First, let's look at COVID. COVID resulted in a lot of stimuli on the American side, which brought 
the U.S. economy out of that COVID-led recession quickly within a year. So the COVID recession didn't last more than a year, even by NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research Standards, they declared that the recession was over within a year after COVID, starting in March 20. So it was, it was a over. rather impressive bounce back. It was a very impressive. Precisely because of the fiscal expansion. Of the Biden administration. Of the, uh, both the Trump and the Biden. Both the Trump and the Biden administration. administration yeah. You know, that resulted in that. Now, there, is a, there are differences in opinion among economists who think that maybe that stimulus was a bit too much. Mm-hmm. People like Larry Summers believed mm-hmm. that even at the time when they, and I was in the administration. And your models said that it was inflationary. That's what you told My models your bosses. which are used commercially available models, yeah. especially that are widely used around the discipline. Mm-hmm. We are talking about, you know, macroeconomic advisors model, mm-hmm. the global insight model. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's kind of interesting that both these models have been bought out by Standard & Poor's. One of my tools to assess economic policies at the administration has been, workhorse, has been to use these models to see the economy-wide impacts. Mm-hmm. And early on, without even looking at the supply side, Most of these models are demand-driven. So They're without, all Keynesian. Yeah. Or normally we like to call them the Mundell-Fleming ah. ISL. <laughs> ISL, yes, exactly. But they are the new classical synthesis. Yeah. You can think of it that way. And I've been a practitioner and using these models over the last 25 years. I've used the Global Insight model. I've used the Macroeconomic Advisors model. These are two workhorses that just about every professional economist has on its desk. And the macroeconomic advisors was basically predicting the kind of stimulus, because I was asked by my superiors, you know, that what would be the impact of this? And just looking at the demand effects alone, without even thinking about the supply side considerations, I found that there would be high inflation, which would result in the federal fund to raise the federal funds rate mm-hmm. exactly the way things have worked out. But unfortunately, one of the things you pay the price when you work in the administration, even as a civil servant, you have to sell their policies. So I told them, you know, after my results, assessments, that the model was predicting it'd be high inflation, as Larry Summers was predicting. Mm-hmm. and other economists, unlike Paul Krugman mm-hmm. which, and Janet Yellen, who were on the other side. Janet Yellen is your boss. Or was and Janet boss. Yellen was my boss. So that led to some disagreements, but then they had their days. So, you know, like I let yeah. them have the results and we stopped. And they ignored them. And they ignored them, of course. Excellent. And they didn't yeah. shoot you, unlike in Russia or China. Well, they did shoot me. They pushed me out of the door. <laughs> so I was happy to retire and to greener pastures. Such as this podcast. <laughs> Such as this podcast. Because I would have not been able to do this, frankly. And you know, this is the case. When you work for the administration, you're very near the fire and the flame. So you have to bow down and take it. You But anyway. We burnt from time to time. You're like exactly. Icarus. You fly too close to the sun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So in answer to your question, the U.S. fared very well due to the stimulus yeah. on the demand side, as expected, 
there was that inflationary impulse. And then compounding that was the supply side issues that came up. And then we had the Ukraine-Russia conflict boosted energy prices. Mm -hmm. So all of these, the demand pull, uh, you know, stimulus. Uh Number two, the supply side shocks. And number three, the energy issues due to Mm Ukraine-Russia. And, of course, OPEC Plus designed to cut oil production. All resulted in high inflation, much higher than everyone thought it would be, which is kind of weird. Economists always end up short-sighted. Where most economists, and I was part of the Troika process, where I used to work with the Council of Economic Advisors and the Office of Management and Budget, and we'd hammer out an economic forecast for the budget. So I hammered it out for the last year's budget. And at that time, I was telling them that there'd be much more inflation than they were putting in the budget. And sure enough, the last year, 2022, has witnessed one of the highest inflation rates over the last 40 years here. So clearly, you know, that has happened. Uh, Now the question is, how do we see it going forward? I am looking forward, I believe, the good news. The good news is that the unemployment rate is historically very low by historical standards. It's never been as low uh, as 3.5%. And is it because there are lots of jobs? So is it because a lot of people have dropped out of the workforce because the unemployment rate is calculated on the basis of those looking for a job. Exactly. You know, the unemployment rate, of course, is people who are looking for jobs divided by people who have jobs and people who are looking for jobs. So clearly, the unemployment rate, if people are not looking for jobs, you know, clearly the unemployment rate would be lower. There's another statistic. It's called the labor participation rate, Mm -hmm. which attacks that directly. Mm -hmm. That is... If you look at people who are employable Mm -hmm. within that employment age between 16 and, let's say, 65, Mm -hmm. what percentage of the population is in the labor force? That's called the participation rate. So historically, before we entered COVID and all that stuff, the participation rate, people between 16 and 65, who were in the labor force, they were like, I think, over 63 or 60, yeah, about 63%. We haven't got to that yet. So there is some truth to the idea that some people have left the labor force. The participation uh, rate has fallen. But it's still a mystery as to how it is so low. But now where have they gone? Exactly. Where have all the workers gone? <laughs> to Disneyland, I suppose. <laughs> so now, you know, like my favorite theory always has been the Uber drivers and Uber Eats yeah. and all the derivatives yeah. that have come out of that. Yeah, yeah. That, that the gig economy. Yeah. Where, where no one is really registered as a worker, but they're all working, some, doing something. There was one theory, which I think now has gone away by the wayside, is that there were so many benefits given yeah. during COVID that there were disincentives to work. You yeah. know, there were people, you know, there were, for example, yeah, but it, when the Trump rolled out its first fiscal stimulus, in fact, people were getting paid more without a job than they were working at McDonald's. So, so there that was, was indeed a disincentive to work. You know, we've gone into supply and demand. So that is great. Exactly. The two drivers of the uh, of the U.S. economy. What about uh, in drivers in terms of sectors? such as real estate, for instance. Well, of course, you know, the major drivers in the U.S. economy, the sectors, if you look at it from the supply side, okay, or, you know, what do consumers demand? 
No, of course, the biggest sector is definitely, you're right, the, the housing sector. The housing sector. In terms of percentage of GDP, the housing sector, I was just surprised. It's about 40% of the U.S. economy. It's just housing alone, you know, that... Uh, Extraordinary. It's extraordinary, you know. Like, but anyway, it leads to a property-owning democracy, as Maggie Thatcher would say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, the housing sector is a very large sector, yeah. and over the last two or three years, it has been on a roller coaster. On the one hand, because of historically low federal fund rate and you know conventional mortgage rates and all the lending rates that were low, led to a property boom. You know, it led to immense price increases in the housing sector. That has subsided. So, the, so that's one big sector. Of course, it has subsided because of the federal funds rate increasing and conventional mortgage rate going up. So it is cooling down. I believe, uh, like in the last two or three years, there was a housing bubble mm -hmm. which has subsided. Beyond that, if you look at one of the things that is bothering is retail spending by consumers. The, the most recent statistic that came out on retail spending is that consumption spending is kind of weak. The main driver of the U.S. economy at all is clearly consumption spending. It's a consumption-oriented economy. It's just a very consumption. China is an export-oriented exactly. economy. This economy, we are talking like close to 80% mm -hmm. of the U.S. economy is essentially consumption. I see. And then, you know, you have investment, of course, yeah. like about 13 14%, and the rest is the government sector. So clearly, if the consumer is not feeling good, the economy is headed nowhere in the short run. So clearly... So in the short run, are we looking at a recession? Uh, now, because of that housing sector cooling down, mm -hmm. again, when we talk about growth rates from period to period, you can have a negative growth, but that doesn't mean that the level has gone down Absolutely. compared to the past. Yeah. So we have to be very mindful of that yeah. fact. Because the houses are still there, the roads are still there, the assets are still there. And yes, if people buy one T-shirt... So, so if something went up like 10% yeah. last year, and now in the next period, it's like decreased by 1%, but they, that level is still 9% higher. Up from two years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yes, as yeah. I said, if they buy one T-shirt less and two jeans less, yeah. then so, it's so, not such a biggie. Exactly. So, you know, the recent statistics, of course, that came out, on the fourth sector, fourth quarter GDP yeah. for the USA, it came at 2.9% yeah. growth, which is higher than normally there is a thing called potential growth in the US economy. And the way I look at the potential growth in the US economy is about 2%. Because, mm -hmm. you know, think of it as 2% consists of like labor force growth mm -hmm. and productivity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so if you have labor force growth growing, at, you know, like uh, less than 1% and uh, population growing at, a uh, labor force growing mm. at, productivity growing at 1%, labor force growing at 1%, you're talking about 2% growth. Mm -hmm. So I think going forward, the U.S. economy in a normal year, 2% growth is great. Understood. And an unemployment rate, we used to think an unemployment rate of like about 45 was approaching mm. what we call Nairu. Yeah. The non-accelerating inflation, inflation rate of unemployment. Yeah. And we are at 3.5. Uh -huh. So having a growth of 2.9% uh -huh. and unemployment rate of 3.5% going forward doesn't mean that the, you know, like we are headed to a recession. But it depends on how the economy comes through as federal funds rate goes up to combat inflation. And that's the danger. 
I see. Now, in the long run, the U.S. economy is very robust. You and I have spoken about how the U.S. has 300 plus million people, let's say 320, 330. Who knows how many people have uh, have uh, streamed over the border uh, <laughs> with Mexico. But the point is, on a serious note, it has uh, 320 million people. It has one language. Unlike Europe, it has extraordinary labor mobility. Uh, unlike Europe or even India, it has the energy independence. It has fertile soil, massive resources. Uh, to top that up, it has extraordinary universities and companies um, that create technology. And um, and um, it, it also has the Defense Advanced Research Project uh, <laughs> Projects Agency, DARPA, which came up with the internet. So all in sure. all, uh, you know, with its openness to immigration, both high skill and low skill, high skill from India, China, right. yes, uh, Europe, and low yeah. skill from Mexico, the U.S. is in pretty good shape. Uh, and uh, would you be bullish on the medium term, long term prospects of the U.S. economy? Thank you, Atula. You know, you've described the U.S. economy to a team in the long-run prospect. You know, I was an economic advisor to the Saudi Kingdom in the late uh, 1990s, like from 96 to 2000. Apparently, when your tennis game was at its peak. It was my tennis game. I used, <laughs> that's all I did. So either I was working or I was playing tennis. What else can you do in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> But, uh, you know, one I, thing... I don't think people work that much in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> would that be fair to say, Nasser? <laughs> well, it depends on who the people are. <laughs> it would be fair to say that the, the locals are not probably working because they are the employers. <laughs> I see. I see. <laughs> and so, the employees are the foreigners. Uh, but anyway, one of the things I used to say, and I'll say the same for the U.S., was, you know, when I would talk to my American colleagues, uh, then they would very wistfully say, a day will come when the Saudis will have no oil. Because you know, whenever they would get fed up with the Saudis, that would be their kind of thing. Watch, a day will come when the Saudis will not have oil. It's exactly the same with the American way. If people get ticked off at the Americans and say, well, a day will come when America will no longer rule the world, well, like I used to laugh at the Americans, I would laugh at the foreigners for the reasons you mentioned. I see. That day will never come, the way things are moving, at least in my lifetime or your lifetime. Mm -hmm. Will the dollar go off its reserve status? I don't think so. Unlikely. Will the U.S. lose its status as the largest, greatest economy in the world? Highly Which unlikely. Highly unlikely. Yeah. These are, there are certain things that the U.S. has, natural advantages, like you pointed out. It's got a very fertile land. It's got highly skilled, educated, you know, uh, workforce. people, workforce. And like I was talking, we were just laughing. We should, I think, come up with, you know, they have all these indices by the World Bank mm -hmm. and the IMF. We should call it the immigration index. <laughs> One of the biggest resources that the U.S. has is its immigration policy. It's got its borders open to bring in the most talented and highly skilled workers of the world. And that contribute to this economy. Most of the advanced world, the Europeans, China, yeah. I don't know about India, their populations, India, I mean, their populations are slowing down. No, India's population is not slowing down. Slowing down. Yes. But so, China, Japan, the Europeans, their population is slowing down. They're dramatically aging countries. America is not. 
hmm. because of his immigration policy. So, so the it, brings, day, it gets fresh blood repeatedly. Exactly. But it gets it on both ends of the spectrum. It gets very highly skilled immigrants who come to the MITs and the Stanfords. Exactly. And it also gets Mexicans and Guatemalans and, and Salvadorians to pick lettuce or tomatoes in so California's fields. So it's got the agricultural fields. sector taken yes. care of and it's the, the intellectual capital <laughs> taken exactly. care of. Exactly. The cost of labor can't go crazy high. Yeah. And, and indeed, you have uh, all these uh, entrepreneurial types coming in and starting companies such as Fair Observer. Exactly. And then it's got <laughs> the best credit rating in the world. So, and then it's got the most advanced financial market. Yeah. So the most financial, advanced financial market, high immigration index, you know, you name it. So the long-term prospects for the U.S., unless it destroys itself politically, mm -hmm. you know, like some kind of a force, a major, I think long-term prospects are great for the U.S. Short-term prospects, there's always a downside yeah. to those, of course. Now, we've talked about the rosy side of America, the rosy side of the United States of America. Let's talk about um, some of the dangers. Three things are often talked about. Number one, uh, the U.S. debt. As you can see, it's uh, a game of political football. Um, by football, I mean soccer, but we could mean American football as well if you so wanted. Second, of course, is healthcare, the ever-rising costs of healthcare. Uh, which have become a, a big burden for many companies, and especially small companies. And number three, inequality, which has risen spectacularly. And even as I walk around Georgetown, or I walk everywhere, as you know, and I see tens of homeless people all around. And, and when you go to California or to San or to places like New Orleans or San Francisco, you can see the cities are right. in a state of disarray. Sure. So, so let's talk about all these three, uh, starting with the debt ceiling. Do you think the increase in debt is a risk to the U.S. economy? No, I, I think, you know, like, let's, let's just actually talk about that. Yeah. Okay, there are two things that I will raise. People talk about the debt a lot. One is a minor issue and one is a major one. Mm. Okay. The minor issue, which I, you know, I've never been able to figure it out, it's the way the political system works in the U.S. Mm. Every time when we have a budget that is passed by Capitol Hill and the president, yes, that implies a certain debt. Yes. So I don't know because why the government we have to, runs a deficit. If the deficit has been passed and approved, yeah. then implicitly the debt has been approved. Mm -hmm. But somehow we needlessly get in. And I was at you know like in the the. The Treasury. You were in the engine we, room. We needlessly go through that debate on the debt. Mm -hmm. Because the, the deficit, debt ceiling. The debt ceiling. Becomes a game of football wanted, and chicken, actually. Because it doesn't make sense. It's just like saying, think of it as a household. Mm -hmm. If we decide that we are going to increase our deficit this month mm -hmm. by $100, mm -hmm. that implies that our debt ceiling should be raised by $100. So why do we have to go through a separate debate for that? Yeah. We've already, it should be part of that question. Of the budget That's discussion. Budget discussion. Mm -hmm. So it should be, instead of wasting another two, three months needlessly and letting the treasury grow through it, mm -hmm. going to economizing, and then all the waiting agencies like Moody's, mm -hmm. Standard & Poor's get into the act. It's less needless 
Okay. It's now a circus. The long... What you're saying, it's, it's a grand it's political theatre. It's the a debt circus. itself, when we come to that debate, yeah. the debt ceiling is basically a non-starter because it's already been decided when the deficit was approved. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's a minor quibble. Now let's look at the major one. Again, the question is, how much debt is too much debt? That's essentially the question. Exactly. Uh, and a lot of people come up with figures. And people come up with, like, you know, uh, like several years ago, especially in the onset of the Great Recession, you had people like Carmen, you know, Reinhardt, Reinhardt and Rogoff. Yeah. They came up with basically a 500-year history of financial crisis, and their main thesis, or their main conclusion was that financial crises are very different compared to run-of-the-mill recessions, in that it takes a long time for a country to get out of them. Mm. And they presented five years of history. Mm -hmm. so 500 that was, years of history. Yeah. And all these episodes. Yeah. In, taken from European countries, for the USA, mm. and others. And that was their general theme, that financial crisis, if you have a recession caused mm. by a financial crisis, mm -hmm. it's going to take a long time to work yourself out of it, mm -hmm. compared to just general uh, run-of-the-mill demand, uh, you know, uh, reduced uh, recession. But then, you know, like, they should have stopped there. Then the next question was, okay, so then what about debt? How much debt is too much debt? Hmm. And they were, you know, they were asked, how much is it? And, you know, it's very hard to put a number and make it check for every country. It depends on the country and how you're doing the accounting. The Europeans do the debt accounting very differently than the U.S. They do not, for example, the Europeans, when they talk about that, essentially because they don't have states like the U.S. has, hmm. they look at the total debt as the central debt plus the regional debt. Mm -hmm. in they're the, more unitary than the U.S. They're more unitary. Yeah. In the U.S., we have two different entities. We have the federal government and we have the state and local government. Actually, you have three because you have local governments. Then you state have state and local governments. governments. Yeah. That's what I said. Yeah, exactly. Federal government, state and local government. Yeah. So, uh, okay. That's so true. When, and we, so what, what the Europeans do and the IMF generally does, and now they're correcting it, is that they add up these debts. Yeah. And they say, well, this is the general debt. Not realizing that a lot of assets of the state and local governments are actually holding treasury bonds. So there's inter-assets. So what the federal government has a debt, it should subtract the state and local holding of federal bonds, which are not part of that debt. Exactly. Because then you're counting the debt twice. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like, they used to do it all the way till about 10, 15 years ago. So and have now, they stopped now? No, they haven't. Now they give you both numbers. I see. Okay. But anyway, going back to the debt, the other thing that has happened in the U.S., so we don't know what is the tipping point. Is it 100%? Is it 100%? The general Italy rule, has 130% uh, debt yeah. GDP ratio and an aging economy. And there so far, uh, even though they voted for Giorgia Meloni, the far-right leader, uh, yeah. they haven't quite collapsed. They haven't tipped over. And then we have to compare it to the, the corporation, for example, who has debt on their, their who balance Who have debt, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that debt is financing productive assets. So when we talk about debt... If they are well-run. If they're well-run, of yeah. course. But then a corporation cannot exist 
if their productive assets are all gone. So mm. then, then their share prices would take a dive. That analogy, if one thinks about it, that a lot of US government debt has financed productive assets, mm. like you're talking about internet, mm-hmm. and all the, the, the social welfare mm-hmm. that the economy has gained, that has gained rents. Mm-hmm. And they are paying taxes in the future. As the incomes go up because of the internet, they'll be paying taxes to the US government, mm-hmm. which will finance the debts that would take, oh, you know, like when you finance someone's education, you yeah. take on debt. Yeah. Or you, you take a mortgage. When you take a mortgage, yeah. you finance debt. So one has to separate the two. Mm-hmm. But and unfortunately, in the US system of accounting, we do not separate the two. We, we do talk about investment, but it's a very small portion. So keeping all that in mind, no one really knows. And then, of course, as you know, recently there was a new theory that came out called the modern monetary theory. Yes, I, I never that, believed in it. Yeah. <laughs> saying basically that the U.S. is in such a position yeah. that it can continue to, to uh, Endlessly debt. take debt. Endlessly and, take debt uh, because it's going to be held. Yeah, it can print money endlessly and others will buy its uh, yeah. bonds and therefore because it, it can use that such, money. It's such a rich economy. Yeah. We were talking about the rich economy, yeah. the fertile economy, yeah. the land, the assets that people are willing to hold you know, like those assets and, you know, debt and so on. So we do not know how much debt is enough unless we classify it. But clearly, we should be looking at primary debt, which is what the IMF does. That primary debt is basically, if your debt, if your spending, your government can cover the interest payments on the debt, Mm. you know, like uh, basically you can service the debt then you're basically fine. Mm-hmm. So what is the optimal level of debt? Basically, it is that if you can service it. And you know, there's this new thing you probably heard of, uh, GNR. Yes. Have you heard of that yeah, story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but please explain to our listeners what okay, is GNR. Great. Yeah. GNR actually is you know, very interesting because again, keep in mind, it was a guy used to be the chief economist uh, at the IMF. And then he was also uh, like a professor for many years at the MIT. So he basically came up with this. And about uh, in at, at Atlanta, you're talking about New Orleans. Several years ago, I think three or four years ago, the AEA were held in Atlanta, and I attended that. And the presidential address was delivered, given by that Olivier Blanchard. Yeah, yeah. And he basically, French chap. yeah. And he basically came out, and he he's right. He said, look. As long as the economy is growing, growth rate is G, yeah. is more than the rate of interest, yeah. then you can continue to accumulate debt. The government can continue to accumulate debt mm-hmm. uh, without any problem. Yeah, but that means that now, at least in the short run, until inflation is high, the U.S. government should not be accumulating debt because growth rate is lower than the interest rate. We're talking about the nominal growth rate. So it is the real one you're talking Ah, okay. So it's nominal so it's minus a nominal, inflation. Exactly. So it's yeah. a nominal growth rate has to be greater than the nominal interest rate. Understood. So that was what he was saying. Yeah. So implicitly, it, it, you know, it makes sense. Because as long as the government can finance its debt. Yeah. Now, but clearly, if the government starts spending on consumption, mm-hmm. and if you remember, you know, uh, like uh, Barrow, 
Pharaoh had this whole Ricardian equivalence mm -hmm. story that if there's too much debt, then taxpayers will automatically start saving, anticipating future tax increase. Yeah. So, so the government. I, I wish taxpayers were so wise. Exactly. <laughs> and think about it. So, so there is no. Okay. Each country is very different. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, Rogoff and Weinhardt um, didn't do a great service mm -hmm. when they gave numbers like 100% or 110%. I see. So, 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 to pin you down, you don't think the rising debt of the US is as yet an issue? It may be an issue tomorrow? I, I think that's a, a, a good question. Presently, the way you know, I believe in the saying markets work. Mm -hmm. Presently, the dollar is a reserve currency of the world. Around the exactly yeah. around the world, uh, central banks are holding uh, U.S. debt, mm -hmm. like ten percent in China. Yeah, uh, you know, and you, even Europeans are holding yeah. it. Uh, third world countries like India, Pakistan are holding it. So as long as everyone is willing to hold government debt as a country is safe, it's like an immigration index. <laughs> then, given that kind of scenario, reserve currency status, yeah. uh, a safe country, haven country, mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, and then depends on what the government spends mm -hmm. it on. Mm -hmm. I don't think that is a big issue. All right. So let's move on to healthcare, which is a major issue in this country. The costs are extremely high as a percentage of the GDP. The uh, in fact, you know, like yeah, okay. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was just looking at the numbers, uh, the numbers on healthcare spending uh -huh. in 2022. Ah, excellent. Consumption spending on healthcare, mm -hmm. it's uh, 11.5%. I see. That's so, it? That's it. So it's actually, it's kind of weird that healthcare spending yeah. in the U.S. economy has actually gone down compared to like 10 years ago. And what was it 10 years ago? It was approaching 16%. Oh, I see. So how is it going down? Is it, is, it because I think costs are going down? or Primarily, I think it has to do with the Obamacare yeah. that went in, the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Plus, you know, the, the stringent requirements of Medicare, Medicaid and Medicare I see. and prescription benefits, you know, like GW. If you remember, he passed George W. Bush. G. W. Bush, yeah. I see. So, so you would say healthcare is not that big an issue at this time, given the electorate, given the way things are yeah. working, given the Affordable Care Act yeah. that people are covered. Yeah. See, what was the issue of healthcare? The issue that started and that brought Obama into power, yeah. and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton also campaigned on it was primarily that as a percentage of their income, the average household was spending a lot on mm -hmm. healthcare. And the healthcare spending was just a big portion of the, the, the US budget, the government mm -hmm. budget. So both of these things were taking a toll. So people were getting squeezed, and then you had that. Now, a couple of things happened along the way, which is just amazing, remarkable. One is this whole rise of the insurance industry, the health insurance industry. Mm -hmm. Previously, it was like it was you and the 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 the, the doctor mm. and the hospital. Yeah. Then the and then you know then patients passed it on to the insurance. Then what the insurance did first, 
it actually increased the cost of healthcare initially. But then you, you got another class that got in, and that was the lawyers, the malpractice mm, people. The ambulance chasers. The ambulance chasers. So, you know, there's this dynamic in economy. Wherever there's honey to be made, bees come around. So you had the lawyers chasing the, 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 the healthcare industry, number one. Then, of course, the electorate was worried you know, about the healthcare costs. Yeah. And I was part of that when we were doing the Obamacare. Uh, again, unfortunately, we didn't get the, the healthcare that uh, the Europeans get. Mm. But I think we attacked a very major problem, and that is at least the poor people get access. So there are good things, there are two good things mm. in the USA healthcare system right now mm-hmm. that are actually, I was very surprised, are not there, especially mm-hmm. in England. There's the, the NHS is in crisis, National Health yeah. Services in acute crisis. Rory Stewart and Alastair Campbell do a podcast called The Rest is Politics. And and they had one entire segment called uh, Can the NHS Be Saved? It's as dire as that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one of the things is, although it looks that, you know, in the UK uh, that you get uh, free health care, but the thing is, what's the point of having free health care that if you have to wait in line for like two months for care? Mm -hmm. But waiting times are quite high uh, in American healthcare right now. They're not in emergency. I see. Not in emergency. Like if you have yeah. to have a kidney transplant or anything, then you and you look yeah. at you know like or the heart issues. Mm. The, the, so delivery is better in the USA. Secondly, I think with Obamacare, at least the vulnerable have been brought in. So healthcare, in your view, is not as big a deal and. Progress has been made. So now let's no, in uh, my view, definitely, like you said, mm. there is clearly more reform in the American healthcare. We are spending way beyond more per, you know, episode. Per uh, we are overspending. Mm-hmm. There needs to be streamlined. I think technology has made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Number one, Obamacare has made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Where you've got this. Now, uh, doctor-patient uh, uh, visits online. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of streamlining, but there are a couple of fundamentals that need to be done. When I was in the administration, I, I wanted, when people would say, okay, which is like the Germans and the UK mm-hmm. and the French, I said, yeah, but we are just attacking the front line. We are not doing the production. We're doing the distribution. Mm-hmm. For example, the production of doctors. Now, if it costs like half a million dollars to become a doctor, then yes. how can they? How can they achieve healthcare? So it goes back almost to the cost of education here, which is exactly. extremely high. Extremely so high. It, it, so it, you have the to university, have... you don't just have the military military industrial complex, and we'll come to that later. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, have, we have the prison industrial complex and the educational industrial complex. Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 so but that was so, my point so, that we have to attack it. At the whole level, holistic level, yeah. you know, like starting from production. So the costs of education are a key component here. Of course. Exactly. And the costs of perhaps pharmaceutical medicines and all of and that come into being. So those have been attacked. Yeah. So pharmaceuticals have been attacked. The insurance have been capped. And now the government has stepped in yeah. with the affordable care. You have these market places. Yeah. So that has helped, you know. And then, of course, raising the dependent care to 26 years old. Mm-hmm. Just to be 21. Mm-hmm. Can you believe it? My first daughter, when she became 21, 
she was independent. She couldn't be covered by my plan. Mm -hmm. So I had to go in the market and get her a plan mm -hmm. before Obama came. Mm -hmm. Luckily, she got a job in State Department. And <laughs> moved on. But anyway, so that's Excellent. the healthcare issue. It is an issue. It needs to be attacked. It hasn't been but fully it's not a big risk for the attacked. economy at, at the macro level. It, okay. it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. So now we come on to the issue that you talk about that uh, my co-author, the retired CIA officer, Glenn Carl, talks about uh, that the investor, Antoine Juan Akhtemail, who came up with the term emerging markets, he talks about, um, and that is inequality. Uh, you've said that inequality is a huge risk to the U.S. economy. Explain. It's not only just a huge risk to the U.S. economy, it's a huge risk to the U.S. political economy. Mm -hmm. The whole class, mm -hmm. it can break down. It is amazing. Uh, you know, like, it starts, if one looks at the state of the U.S. Uh, the wealth distribution, mm. uh, let me again throw some numbers at you. Let's first look at the income distribution in the U.S. Mm. I was flabbergasted, you know, many years ago, four or five years ago, there was a big symposium, there were big demonstrations about rising inequality that came coincidentally with the Thomas Piketty book, you know. Yeah. Thomas Piketty, you know, yeah. his, his uh, the, what was magnum it called, opus. The, the wealth of, uh, when, uh, some thing, his magnum opus, yeah. showing, depicting that we were back in the, the, the age of extreme inequality in the U.S. Yeah. The a bit like 20s. the Roaring Twenties and the Gilded Age of the, the 1860s. Exactly. Yeah. And he showed that in yeah. his you know, book. So essentially, and then that led to a lot of fires storm in the USA, and there were a lot of symposiums and everything. And, you know, every year, along with the budget, the, the Council of Economic Advisors puts out a, a book, which is very good reading, called The Economic Report of the President. Mm. I would recommend that to any macroeconomist would be your aspiring is to read that economic mm -hmm. it issue it looks at issues very dispassionately that are the emerging risk so it brought up this whole issue of rising inequality about i think 5 6 years ago and you know when i looked at the numbers they were just amazing it's just like something like let's just throw some numbers in terms of income the top 1% of mm -hmm. the us population controls 35% of the income Mm -hmm. And what about the wealth? Oh, we, I'm coming to okay. the second number. <laughs> I'm jumping the gun. <laughs> yeah. Similarly, exactly. One percent of the top, or around thirty-eight percent of the, the the wealth distribution in the U.S. Hmm. And you know, like when I'm when I'm not getting when I can't go to sleep, I I generally you know like try to do the numbers that how does it play out to the average American. So if you know, like if you got all those guys making thirty-five percent, if one percent, what are the ninety-nine percent? They're getting sixty-five percent, mm. and then you know you have an economy of twenty trillion dollars. Mm. So how much does it come to the average? It's kind of amazing, mind-boggling. Mm. And, and, and mind you, and mind you, the bottom one percent or the bottom five percent have a minuscule share. Exactly, uh, uh, exactly. And then if you compare it, and then you know there's some after Thomas Piketty. Uh, actually, one of the uh, uh, young boys from India, name is Raj Chetty or Raj Chetty. Chetty. Chetty or Chetty. Yeah. He got to work at Harvard and he did a yeah. lot of work on 
yeah. data gathering and he came up with some fancy numbers. Uh, you know, like, they're amazing. One can go to their website. But the point is that if, and I think, you know, like even that Nobel Prize winner, uh, you know, that British guy, uh, like I'm trying to remember, three, four years ago, he was talking about these issues. And of course you have this, you know, like opioid. Mm -hmm. Opioid epidemic. Yeah. Epidemic, and then you got the homelessness, mm -hmm. and you got the inequality. And it's kind of surprising that we haven't got into riots. You know, this, uh, so it's not well. We've threat. had Occupy Wall Street. We have had the march <laughs> to Capitol Hill. Yeah. We have militias. I have spent time with them driving across this country. But they're but they're not like they're not know, large scale. They're like political oriented rather than economic, economic oriented. Yeah, but yeah. then politicians have been able to give political color. Yeah. To to the economic grievance, uh, because uh, the story goes like this: that China ate our lunch. Ipsa factor, Chinese are the villain. So, so you see, we deflected it. But, you know, like, uh, these are mind-boggling. This is a threat. It's not, it can be an economic threat. But given, it's more of a political econo economic threat. You know, this whole country, uh, and then you've got the safety wall, the immigration. Mm -hmm. That's where it comes down to. Because when you get these immigrants, mm -hmm. they've been used to such low, uh, like poverty level of living mm -hmm. that they think this is a breeze. Yeah, I mean, I, I come from such abject poverty that I think America is wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so, you, you, so there's this element of uh, subservience and restiveness without really getting restless. And that continues to drive it. Well, actually, on a serious note, uh, I think you're perhaps right that when you get immigration, then you have a nervousness even amongst the working class because they are competing for jobs yeah. with the immigrants. And uh, they cannot be too um, revolutionary. And, and America is also very spread out and the cities are not as dense. Uh, it's not like Paris that you could march uh, exactly. to a single focal point of power and guillotine the king. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, in that sense, uh, the, the restlessness yeah. in America is probably contained. Perhaps it is manifesting itself in a in a mental health crisis and, a, and an opioid crisis. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And for example, you know, like uh, exactly. So you so it hasn't emerged yet, mm -hmm. but you it know, could. It, and it, you it, think that is like a, a long term? Risk. It's a long term threat because when you look at how mm -hmm. the, the the state mm -hmm. is able to equalize it. The, the, the Europeans are doing much, much better mm -hmm. than the Europe, Americans are doing. But uh, there's an argument that uh, that also causes Europeans to be sclerotic because they tax so much, because they have so much red tape, because they have such huge welfare states. Uh, European economies are swimming uh, with uh, two, stone tie, two stones tied to both their legs or to each of their legs. So that's also something one hears, particularly from Republican economists. Yeah, but you know, it's not Germany. It's uh, probably maybe the UK. You know, that's the other interesting thing is yeah. that the European economies have done equally well, mm. you know, prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. In spite of, you know, at one time, the, the, the famous whipping dog was the Europeans. Look at them. They have unemployment rate of 8%. Mm. 
Yeah. We have or even 10 over, yeah. over 10% in case of We France. have unemployment of 5%. Yeah. Americans are doing much greater. Mm -hmm. But now, look, you know, they've all basically come to the same kind of unemployment rates. Mm -hmm. uh, the you French, mean Northern the, Europe, obviously, not Greece Europe. and Italy. The French, German, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Italy and Spain are there. Yeah. But, you know, the European, like uh, England, uh, uh, pre Brexit England. Yeah, mm. pre Brexit, of course. Yeah. So, so inequality is an issue. It's a long-term issue. Uh, again, you have the Democrats and the Republicans mm. tugging at it, and then you got the debt, of course. Yeah. So you know, so the Republicans continue to lower taxes on the rich, mm. which keeps getting them into a more unequal stage. Yeah. And up till now, the pendulum is swinging much to the right. We'll end with this because we mentioned we'll address it. Um, there is little stomach to increase taxes or to have universal basic income or to invest in basic education. In fact, in the US, um, the public school seems to be on the decline and private schools are coming up. So in some ways, the social fabric is fraying a bit. Um, and some say this is because uh, a lot of the money that should be going into rebuilding the society is going into the military-industrial complex. Uh, and you've been in the Treasury, you've been in the heart of the beast, and I don't know what the exact numbers are for defense. Some people say it is $800 billion and there's invisible stuff, and, and if you add that, it's over a billion. Uh, sorry, over a trillion, over a trillion of a... $20 trillion economy, so that's 5%. Um, yeah, would you yeah. concur? Is the military-industrial complex uh, a, a millstone around the neck, or is it uh, the source of uh, uh, strength because it ensures uh, dollar remains the reserve currency of the world, and it brings innovation through institutions like DARPA? Again, you know, th these are my personal views, you know, yeah. like I've been uh, uh, around this a uh, long time. Uh, it's kind of interesting that although the Republicans and Democrats are divided on a lot of stuff, they tend to unite on spending on the military. Mm -hmm. Th that's the first bill that is passed every time. Mm -hmm. Uh, they can be loggerheads for, like, you know, when I was in the administration, uh, you know, I realized that during Obama's time, mm. during even GW's time, every time, budget seldom got passed in due, due time. Mm -hmm. So actually, we were always running on extended resol re resolutions. Whether it was George W. Bush or Barack Obama. Because, you know, there was always this gone. But there was one bill that had already passed. And that was the defense. So there is this mindset, you know, it's like a militant yeah. that no one wants to really think very seriously about, you know, military spending. Well, part of it is, as we discussed, Pentagon gives contracts to defense companies. The defense companies have factories in all these constituencies of various congressmen. So they have 100 jobs there, 500 jobs elsewhere. And, and they fund elections, and they, of course, uh, so, can close companies, and, and so then the congressman so will lose jobs. And then the congressman passed the inflated defense bill, uh, and so it's, it's an iron triangle between the big defense companies like Boeing and Northam Grumman 
the Pentagon and the Congress. That is one side. I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. You're right. It's part of that whole process. The like Eisenhower pointed out. The military industrial. The military industrial. Yeah. No I, one has done any action against it. Yeah, and in a way, it's Keynesian policy because they are redistributing through the defense industrial complex. Because otherwise, who would a factory in Wyoming? Yeah, yeah, but what factory for what? <laughs> for making a nut or a bolt, which goes all so the way to... So you can send it to Ukraine and stuff. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and and beat the Russians. And beat the Russians. Yeah. Oh, the javelins, the $30 billion assistance. So that's one aspect. Yeah. The other is this thing, mantra, that's drilled into every American. Yeah. That these brave men in uniform. Yes, I mean, it's similar to Pakistan. It's similar, exactly. <laughs> it's, Everywhere in the world, the brave men in uniform. Yes. You can't deny them this. You can't deny them. You're a traitor. You you haven't, you know, like they gave the ultimate sacrifice in Afghanistan. What the hell were you doing in Afghanistan? <laughs> no one asked that. Or Iraq, even more oh, problematic. They gave the ultimate sacrifice. No. So, 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 you know, so you have this strange dichotomy that, so there's never been a study, honestly, by an economist. Who has looked at the cost uh, essentially the, the effect of military expenditures on the US growth? Yeah, because some good has indubitably come out of it. The internet emerged out of DARPA. Lots of technologies come well, out. But you throw money hard enough. <laughs> Actually, one of the things uh, that I came across, uh, you know, while I was at Treasury, yeah. which is amazing, even the IMF came up with this idea, yeah. is that actually research and development yeah. in the private sector. Not the defense. Yes. Private sector is very productive. And actually, the U.S. should subsidize. Uh -huh. So we are not subsidizing that productivity. So we are under research and development in the private sector. I see. I see. So they, which, although we do give credits and yeah. we do you know, give uh, you know, exemptions yeah. for research and development in the private sector, yeah. but we should be actually doing more of it. But the arms companies do a lot of it. So there's an argument that they drive innovation it, in the, in the it's, U.S. It's, economy. It's, a, it's the productivity per dollar. <laughs> we don't know. If you throw like $500 for a toilet seat <laughs> versus like $50, no, which is more productive. Well, uh, on that wonderful analogy, I think uh, we'll close uh, this podcast. We are coming up to the hour mark. Uh, Nasir Khildi, what a pleasure, what an honor, and we'll see you again uh, at our next episode when we'll discuss something more fun. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Atul. This was great fun. Great to talk. <laughs> All the best. Bye for now. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>